doing it and are just I've, forgive me if I'm like drained of energy. I've felt kind of like gross all day. This would be a good one. Welcome to Project A Plus. We'll be talking about a newly released science fiction original Netflix film from New Zealand's own Andrew Nichol. Anon. And like a fine wine with a gourmet meal, we'll be pairing that with Body Double. One of my favorite films of all time. From Brian De Palma. Mm. One of my favorite directors of all time. But let's get the good stuff out of the way first and talk about Anon. All right, so I will, I will try and explain the premise of this film um, because you will explain Body Double, I presume. So I will uh, I'll paint a picture of the setup of Anon. So it's in the not-too-distant future, an unspecified point in the future that looks suspiciously like today but with a bit of a twist right so it's a not so distant future and it's also an episode of black mirror and that other film you mentioned by uh, Catherine bigelow strange taste but it's also just minority report that's what i realized today when i was walking to work this movie is just minority report but more boring so in this particular future everyone has some sort of technological implant that gives them a heads-up display like a video game and this is rendered in the film by this monochrome sort of wireframe. So you've got this augmented reality display. You can do crazy things like see a watch in a window and your display will show what it will look like on your wrist and stuff like that. And you'll get to see advertisements. It's kind of a poorly designed HUD, I would say. Yes. How do you get that? First, first of all, it's, it's cluttered and confusing. And it's too much textual information on the screen at once. No iconography. Phew. What is that also like? Real life. Yeah. I'm just saying. Anon's onto something. And also with every permutation of this display, right? Every new bit of information that comes up. It makes this blippity bloop kind of noise. This generic sci-fi sound design noise. That would annoy the fuck out of you if that was in your head constantly. Like you've got an insect in your head. So everyone has that, and it's constantly recording your perception of the world. So police can use that information to see exactly what occurred in a crime from the witness's perspective. Is it just the visual alteration, or is there also like sound and stuff? Uh, I would say be the visuals and sound. So we follow one of these police characters, played by Clive Owen. So he's investigating a murder in which they don't have the normal conclusive evidence they would expect because when they look through the victim's memory records uh, they can see that at a crucial point it gets hacked and it switches to the perspective of the killer so they can't see who the actual killer is so they have as they say an old-fashioned whodunit on their hands because in the future crime is so easy to solve using this technology that all the cops sit around bored and uh, that dovetails with a sighting in the street that Clive Owen has of someone who his amazing heads-up display does not identify someone off the grid. Uh, and that sets into motion this tapestry of exciting sci-fi events. So we should, we should probably say at this point, before uh, progressing onwards with the film, that it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> not a good film. It's very boring. It plays out like sci-fi noir, I guess, murder mystery. It's kind of just like... You know, if you've watched Blade Runner, you know what to expect. But more sterile. 
Sterile is a good word for it because it looked like there was about a dozen people existing in this entire world. I wonder what the budget was. I mean, I don't think Netflix ever releases those things, but it did not seem very high. They don't really attempt to make the world look different other than this this heads-up display, I guess. Um, Except that apparently now police buildings, uh, like these sparse, brutalist spaces in which men sit around concrete tables in the middle of giant rooms and talk without without effect whatsoever (laughs) and and freely smoke as well which is interesting (laughs) strange 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 backwards twist (laughs) maybe we've cured smoking i guess just so clive can seem more hard-boiled uh because what he does with the rest of his time he goes to his sparsely furnished apartment (laughs) grabs some whiskey and broods over his dead son. Yes, like like any number of detective people. Or just like, again, just like Minority Report. Which is just beautiful character work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that's all I need to know to sympathize with this character. I don't think, I didn't think I'd ever, I, think, I don't think I'd ever understood the concept that a son could be dead. You know what I mean? I know. I just, I don't, I, I man, this movie is just so boring. It's a boldly original picture of our yeah. future. It's funny because Andrew Nicole whatever reputation he has nowadays which is not like much i feel like he's like mostly just disintegrated into ash right he certainly peaked early because he wrote the truman show he wrote and directed gattaca which was well received bluffed and then he sort of vanished but i would describe if you were to if i were to say the word name andrew to call you'd be like a sort of sci-fi distinctive sci-fi visions right that's sort of the association that comes to mind. I mean, it's the same with, with Duncan Jones, with, with Mute. It's a similar sort of cachet that has been brought to this Netflix original project. Yeah. Like, less so with Duncan Jones, I think, though. Yeah. But things that on paper you're like, oh, I guess this could be all right. Um, I feel like I feel like there's less, just because uh, Andrew Nicole, like, after Gattaca, like, he sort of vanished, I guess. Like, he made some movies that people haven't watched or don't care about. <laughs> so there you go. We know he's theoretically capable of uh, maybe turning in something that's not too bad. I guess so. <laughs> but, like, I feel like this is, like, like Duncan Jones, like, Moon's pretty entertaining. I guess, like, Warcraft. Don't dunk on Jones. That was a great film. Which one? Mute. <laughs> I wish I could mute you right now. You can. But speaking of his FaceTime, there's, like, a mute function. Oh, I guess I'll just do that then. Okay, you're muted. You can say whatever you want about me. Cool. Just thinking. I don't actually have any thoughts on this. <laughs> That's concerning at all. No. Wow. Oh, I guess I spoiled it. Would you say you had any thoughts, period? Not during the experience of watching this film, except when is this over? <laughs> how many how many hours? It felt like it was endless. Honestly, I I can't say I was like like horribly bored. Oh, I was so bored because it's only an hour and forty minutes. It felt like and there's a sort of like repetitious quality to the plot, right? Too, which I just thought it made me feel like I was dying. <laughs> the world design, production design—that's the word I was looking for. It's just so drab and dull, and like nothing is interesting to watch, look at. Which is like, I, I guess that's like sort of what he's going for, right? Well, I almost liked that. Um, if I can say I liked anything about this film, uh, I kind of like the fact that it really went for something sparse and minimalist 
right down to the HUD design. Yeah, it's kind of like a future design by, I don't know, like Apple. Even more stripped back than that. Like the, the HUD is, is something that would never be actually developed. No. In a world that was even capable of that technology. It wouldn't be designed like that. It would be an absolute nightmare to look through that. But I think that gave the overall film maybe a cohesive visual sense. Yeah, I just, I just don't care. You're not going to use that for any, any sort of reason. No, I mean, it, it doesn't redeem the film. But yeah, I, don't, I didn't mind that. I could see an interesting movie using this aesthetic, right? Maybe, but not this one. Now, because a big focus of this film is on the notion of privacy in an age where, you know, your every recorded experience can be accessed by other people. This started production a couple of years ago, and I'm assuming they would have been wrapped at the whole Cambridge Analytica stuff that happened uh, in the lead up to this being released. The idea of people's privacy being compromised on bulk by this software that everyone uses as part of their daily life. But I mean, it demonstrates how uh... poorly it grapples with these issues. Yes. Yeah. Because it doesn't have anything to say about that at all. This is a movie where I watched it. I was like, this is trying to tell me something, right? Like, it feels like a movie that's like didactic, right? Or it's like set up as such, right? It feels like it has the building blocks of something that is going to tell you something about the importance of privacy and the downside of this technology. But I was trying to realize what are they saying is the downside of this technology? Unless you're being hacked by malicious forces, right? Which obviously can happen. But assuming that doesn't happen, what, what, what are they saying is the downside of this thing that solves all these crimes and, and allows you to access cherished memories of your dead son? One of the things that I both will say, I guess I credit, but I also think was annoyed was that they offered like no exposition whatsoever. It wasn't, like, um, productive ambiguity, you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, they didn't explain this because there's no answer to this, you know what I mean? Not like, oh, I should stop and consider what they're trying to, you know, like, what they're building towards, right? So because of um, Amanda Seyfried's character, who is the anonymous person of the title. Yes. Who Clive Owen walks past in the early part of the film. So her character, right, is sort of supposed to be the the real hero of the film in the way that she she has found a way to live outside of this system and she prides her privacy but just has no personality or or character arc well that's the thing so it has all these these elements that it seems to suggest it's it's going to be some sort of profound statement on the nature of privacy and, and all that sort of stuff but as i said before I don't actually see what the downside is in the way this film presents it. Yeah. And you need kind of more of that to show what the downside is, in, not in the hands of malicious hackers, but the downside of... Well, the government, yeah. Yeah, the government. There needs to be some conspiracy involving bureaucracy. I mean, and there kind of is a little bit, because the bad guy, spoilers, is, like, employed by the government, right? But he's, like, he's like a he's like a lone wolf who exploits, like, something. Like, it's not like... He's not doing his malicious hacking... On behalf of the government, he just happens to also work for the government. Hey, I guess there is some suggestion that the this the government technology, but also another question that I have is like, which is never resolved. Like, what it what is it? Are you allowed to not have like these implants if you want? You know what I mean? Is it like a totalitarian state or? I think the suggestion is everyone has to have it. But yeah, because the baby has one, right? At one point. Yeah. But like, and that's why that's why. Amanda Seyfried's character is like an anomaly that raises flags. But also, they don't seem like that concerned by the fact that she's doing that, you know? Like, the fact of, of her um, 
subverting the system is not what like puts them on her trail it's the fact that she is murdering people or that people are getting murdered right and they think it's to do with her. yeah so that's why i was confused if it because if it if it is something that's in planet for birth you presume that there'd be like laws against you know subverting it but apparently there aren't which is strange to me there's some stuff that should be explained for this movie to function properly you know for this kind of movie, which is not like it's it's trying to be like the sci-fi parable or whatever, you need some of that. Otherwise, it's just like just is just gibberish essentially. And uh, by the, so by the end of the film, it has that final line of the film spoken by Amanda Seyfried. Clive Owen assumes that because she wants to be anonymous and not have her memories recorded or, or accessible, that she's hiding something. And her response is, "No, I don't have anything to hide. I just have nothing I want you to see." which is a decent line, I think, to sum up what the film wants to say about privacy. It's not supported by the rest of the film, is the problem. And I'd rather see a film that explored that idea. Yeah, let's. we should definitely cover the sex in this film. It seemed like the sex was generated by a male gaze algorithm, <laughs> I would say. It's very true. So we have lipstick lesbians. Yes. Um, and then some high-class pornographic scenes of... Uh, Clive Owen having sex with a prostitute they're like it's really explicit too and then later him with Amanda Seyfried as well and he's not like supposed to be like a moral character I guess but like at the same time you're not offered any other viewpoint so it's like I don't know there, there's something very sort of disconcerting and uh it's incredibly misogynistic yeah I was I was surprised when I looked up the credits that Amanda directed this film <laughs> <laughs> a straight straight man as well it's weird yeah I think that I think that lesbian scene is the worst though because, like, they both get uh, killed, and you're just, like, looking at their dead, naked bodies and covered in bloody Like, Why am I watching this? And it replays that scene twice. Yeah. <laughs> it split-screens it, even. The best visual stuff in this film is probably the split-screen shots. The idea of it is interesting, but it's just something from Strange Days. But so, the, so um, I guess we should talk about exactly what we're talking about. Which is that what the killer does, is if I understood it correctly, is that um, when they're about to murder someone, they hack into their their eye cam, right? And then force them to watch with their scene. So essentially they're watching themselves get murdered. Even though I think that none of the actors like pull off that well, right? Because presumably you'd still like, you would be like, I can't see anything. You'd see what they're seeing. Like, it would be like confusing, of course, but like. I don't know. It'd be disorienting initially, but no one makes like a lunge to like fight back. It's like they're still in relation to where your body is, right? Also, I hated that it like did first person shooter. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean by that? Like first person shooter camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like they're all every time there's a gun on screen, it's like held up like right with the eye list that you know that there's a gun in it, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> and then this leads to. Kind of what the film's selling point was in the trailer, which is what happens when someone is able to hack your vision and distort reality. And that happens to Clive Owen later in the film. And it stretches like the stairwell, so he can't negotiate stairs properly. And then it turns into young Sherlock Holmes, and he starts seeing visions of like fire and rats and stuff, and reacting according to stuff that isn't there. I was like... Oh, I was like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, a movie protagonist is doing something that's so stupid and you're like, I hate watching you do this because, like, there's no way anyone would react like that. Like, you, you understand that your your vision is being like, It's not going to spontaneously be rats in your apartment, you fucking idiot. Like, I just didn't like... But I think that, that that's an interesting 
idea to explore. Yeah, I agree that it's interesting. It's just not it's not articulated in the interesting yeah direction. The execution, like like the entire film, is shallow. I didn't even understand the the plot of the bad guy because that wasn't given much screen time whatsoever. Was he like her jealous ex boyfriend or stalker? And that's what I assumed at first. That it's like, I I think they were just like lead him on. And it's never, like, explained. No, it's not. That, that was, like, just, okay. And then he dies. <laughs> I do I do like the idea of hacking someone to watch you murder them. Like, that's really, like, fucked up. And, like, in the hands of someone like Brian De Palma, for instance, that would be interesting. And you could get a lot of bizarre, like, uh, uh, symbolism through that, but not in this movie. So should we recommend it to our fans? Yeah, yeah, everyone should watch it. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was unwatchable. The, uh, I mean, by virtue of its running time and its type of plot, I didn't find it unwatchable, but there's no reason for anyone to watch it. I never want to see another film with a policeman or a detective who has an estranged relationship with a former wife who, who he used to have a family with. He drinks whiskey and he nurses some guilt and makes bad personal decisions, but is a talented cop of some description speaking of awful films shall we move on to what no, <laughs> no. don't trap me no <laughs> um so anyway we'll move on to our second film which you can introduce and disclose so we watched one of my personal favorite films i would say it's it's like up there i'd say top 20 favorite films maybe top top five it's up there top five yeah wow. It's great. A film called Body Devil, directed by Brian De Palma. Sort of the enfant terrible of the new Hollywood cinema, I'd say. Even though they're all kind of enfant terribles. And it's a movie. Oh, it's a movie. Should I go into what you do? Maybe, maybe give a, a shade of the plot. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. So it's... um. Essentially, it's one of De Palma's sort of riffs on Hitchcock films, which he does sometimes. The film that answers the question, what if Rear Window and Vertigo were one film? And what if that film was an 80s erotic thriller? <laughs> yes, and you added uh, sequences set in porn as well. Yes. But also, this film kind of functions as a parody of Hitchcock, at least in my estimation. Yeah, as he said, it's kind of a mixture of Rear Window and Vertigo. Uh, a washed-up, out-of-work actor who is very claustrophobic, just like Jimmy Stewart's Vertigo, uh, comes home to discover that his wife is cheating on him with uh, another man, and then he gets kicked out of the house, uh, has to discover somewhere else to live, uh, a friend of his, or a, uh, a acquaintance of his, turns him onto a sublet that he said, which is this ridiculous 80s UFO house, which overlooks Hollywood. And uh, discloses something else uh, special about this house, which is that if he stares through a telescope, he can spy a woman doing an erotic dance across the street every night or so, he says. So he does this. He watches her um, do her masturbatory routine. And then on the second night, he sees someone else watching. And the movie sort of unfolds from there. So, Hugh, what do you think of uh, a body double? Uh, it's very enjoyable. I guess there's a similar sort of 
sensibility to someone like Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, yeah. In its use of genre conventions. But then, like, pushing them to this almost over-the-top sensibility. Like, consciously pushing them to breaking point, really. And there's a lot of metatextual stuff, because obviously the, the character is an actor, and we see scenes from his films, and then he has hallucinations about other scenes and all that sort of stuff. And then there's a director, minor character, who is literally wearing Brian De Palma's, like, actual clothes. And played by Dennis Franz. <laughs> yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a lot of pleasure to be had in De Palma's sort of gleeful, impish handling of this type of material. Maybe the the gender politics are a little, <laughs> little bit off or something. I can't... I, I think on some level there's a prominent murder scene uh, which is so ludicrous that it it's even difficult to criticize in which the evil villain who we we, we don't yet know who, exactly who it is we've just seen him crop up in scenes in a kind of comic fashion really <laughs> yeah he ends up murdering uh, a woman in this film and it's shot from <laughs> behind him with his legs split apart as he inserts a drill into her torso it's it's very funny which yeah which is just so ludicrous that it's funny and troubling and i mean it's again it's like it's it's a it's a parody of psycho right where obviously the um it's a parody of the the filmic uh, metaphor of like a, a phallic knife or something like that but to some extent the culmination of the portrayal of women in this film maybe sour the experience a little for me but i mean i kind of get that it's self-conscious in in everything it's doing yeah and it's using these genre conventions and this is the way uh, women often function in these type of thrillers but um in contrast to something like basic instinct it doesn't seem to challenge it in in that kind of way i wouldn't say yeah it's not quite just like I don't know, explicitly feminist is that film is. Which is a funny thing to say about Basic Instinct. And it's weird, it kind of becomes a different film partway through, once she gets murdered. When he suddenly goes undercover as a porn actor slash producer director. <laughs> it's so funny. I love the um that the, the music video uh, slash porn suit is so great. I really enjoyed the Frankie Goes to Hollywood cameo that was my favorite bit of the film it's great it's great it's great what can i say it's great and i love at the end where it's like and this is how he got over his claustrophobia so he could go on to act in terrible movies i feel like i'm not doing a very good job of elucidating why i love this film so much but it is it is sort of similar to the reason i love paul Verhoeven, i guess um in that yeah, it's kind of like film as genre criticism, right? And there's something su- supremely enjoyable to me about um, sort of taking this stuff that underlines like noir films and, and Hitchcock thrillers, like sexual dysfunction and voyeurism, and just sort of like making them the text of the film. <laughs> and I find this one to be really, like, just really funny. Like, my favorite shot, and my favorite shot in any movie, is the, um, the bit when they're on the, the beach and they start like kissing and it just cuts this like so over the top scene where the camera is actually like swirling around them or whatever 
Yeah, the 360. It's great. It's great. And it goes on for, like, way too long. <laughs> Do you know how they filmed that? They did it in a studio, right? Yeah. Because it, the background obviously wasn't there. Yeah, um, but if I remember correctly, and I might be getting my facts wrong, wrong about this, I don't remember how this functioned exactly, but they were on a spinning platform, right? So the camera actually, I think, I don't think it was moving at all, which is really funny to me. But they'd obviously have to have an image that moves in the same uh, orientation. Yeah, I think I think it was set up like that. There's just so many like sequences that are just like well, I don't know, like just it's something just really. Like De Palma just knows how to make films that are fun to watch. <laughs> I'd say my favorite part of the film is first of the whole setup of the telescope, looking onto his neighbor. And it has that musical motif that plays like every time he leans <laughs> down into it. I love, I love that. Um, it's like it's like supposed to be this like oh high eroticism, you know. And then it, like it starts playing when he's like pulling her panties out of the, the trash can. <laughs> I love how long he takes that first look. Like the guy shows him like oh look what she's doing. He's like oh. Okay. I, I love how like like his is like his mind just gets erased when he's doing it too. And like he takes later in the film like he takes a phone call while he's still watching and. Um, but I love I love the bit where, where he first sees that the evil guy is who, who's watching her from a satellite dish on the roof. I love that shot. Just the makeup of of his face, like he's just watching this woman doing this sexual routine. Yes. And then he pans his his quote unquote camera across to this evil guy also watching from a satellite dish. He looks so like ludicrously evil in his makeup. <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I think is interesting about this film, right? Because it, in in some ways, it it it's kind of like peeping Tom that it really like uh, makes voyeurism seem bad, you know. And and, the, and later there's a scene where like they're both falling at the same time. Like really, his his actions are only like a degree of separation away from the villains. <laughs> I did, I enjoyed those scenes because they were just so odd. It was like what. That guy seems to be following this woman, but never really interacting with her. And there was something amusingly comic about the, the tone of those scenes, especially on the beach when they're there, the, the beach tents and he's sort of sneaking about in the distance. The Palmer's always talked about for the, just this year, like uh, technical complexity of some of the shots that he achieves, right? There's some in the, in the shopping mall sequence that I just love. Like all the actors are sort of like moving, right? And like, and like, it's like all one shot and like people like weave in and out, you know, and you're just watching all this like choreographed movement that just seems like so hard and impossibly like complex, which I think reaches his apotheosis in another film that he made, which is uh, Snake Eyes. Um, but we'll leave that for another episode where we force you to watch the entire De Palma canon. <laughs> what, okay. What did you think of uh, Mr. Craig Lawson, this, this central actor in this film? I thought he was entirely appropriate with the material. He's so good. I can't. I honestly, I've never seen anything else that he's been in. No, I've never seen him before. So, so. I have no idea if he's giving like a good performance or if this is just like the force he was born to play. He's one of those actors who, like, you see in these '80s films, and then they obviously never had a career after that. Well, yeah, yeah, he had a bit of bit of a career, but he's played like bit parts. He's not like a well known property. No, no, like he was in um Nightmare on Elm Street three. He's just a jobbing actor. Right? Yeah, yeah. So he's basically playing himself essentially. I love. I just love how bad of an actor he is in the scenes where he's not like acting. Like the the speaking of the um, the shopping mall bit. Like when he's on the phone and he's listening to her phone conversation, and she like walks over. He has to call her something to say. He's just like, yeah, okay. And then he hangs up the phone. 
like the only thing that he can play sort of well is like a poor producer. <laughs> I love how like spurious the narrative watching is where you can just sort of like <laughs> you can just go do a porn film. Yeah, that that was his plan of getting in touch with her. When surely he could have just managed to get in touch with her another way. But to actually act in a bunch of porn films and then pretend he's like a famous producer director. Do you have any other words you'd like to say about this movie? Other words? Yeah, give me some more words, ma'am. So you, you kind of said it operates uh, to some extent as a parody of Hitchcock. But it's certainly a well he's gone back to numerous times over the course of his career. So what do you think of that aspect of his creative process, which is always to riff on something, right? Yeah. Always to use something as the building block of his, his project. I think for me, it's like a sort of recognition of how how much Hitchcock has like permeated visual culture, right? So to a certain extent, he's like, he's riffing on these sequences because like they're identifiable, you know? And there are movies where he does it um, to better or worse, like deconstructive effect. Like there's, there's sometimes where he just sort of like blandly imitates certain sequences from other films like the there's a pretty famous scene in the untouchables which like copies the step scene or the step sequence in a battleship Potemkin. and that that one's sort of like it doesn't quite have the bite of the other ones but he came out of a lot of experimental theater like that's what he was sort of that was like the scene that he was in beforehand and a lot of that involved uh you know techniques like it's like brecht is very much involved in vogue during that time so i, I think it's something that it, it works almost like a distance effect where you're recognizing the fact that you're watching the movie because this piece has been part of it, uh, part of other movies, you know? But yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons I respond so much to this film is that it, it's very much is like an interrogation of voyeurism. In a way, it sort of, um, it both takes pleasure in its own imagery, but also sort of repudi- repudiates it, in a sense, by, uh, <laughs> I don't want to get too, like, grad school on you. <laughs> yeah, man. Cool your jets. It demonstrates the techniques by which like the male gaze is achieved, right? I feel like that, and that's just a bunch of like winkery. You mean De Palma's a bunch of winkery? Yeah, yeah. I must say, like, I find some of the stuff that people write about him puts me off. Really? Where it does, to use your terminology, get a little bit grad school and annoying. And you just, you're a man of the people, so you just want stuff to be clear and obvious. That's right. Sometimes a film's just a film. Yeah, yeah I don't need to analyze this at all. De Palma was just like, hey, I want to, <laughs> I want to penetrate this woman with a drill. The end. Maybe that's all he wanted. He's just like, I really want this scene. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm finally going to watch some of his really early films. Uh, uh, yeah, I've heard some interesting things about his early, early work. Did you know, he apparently like wanted to be, uh, he's talked about this in interviews, he like basically wanted to be the American Godard. Really? Yeah. And um, I actually read an entire <laughs> or, uh, doctoral dissertation about uh, how his, the political implications of his films. But, like, and obviously the big blowout's like incredibly political. Do you have anything else you want to talk about in terms of De Palma or Body Double or anything? Has he ever won anything at Cannes? Like, I don't think so. Specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about the De Palma Door.
It's a great, great film. Let's say a hundred stars. What's your arbitrary rating? Um, I I think at the time of watching it, I I had it at about three and a half. I sort of like it, enjoyed it more up until like the drilling scene, and then <laughs> the drilling scene's so hilarious though. Ah, uh, and then I yeah, it wasn't so fun to it for the rest uh, of the film. Ah, uh, but the best parts happen after that, except for the Frankie Frankie go to Hollywood bit. I liked the most part. You just you just don't know how to enjoy yourself, man. No. Uh, well, should we move on? Yeah. So, he, what was your, what was your, your low light? My low light from my last week of viewing. No, for your, from your entire life. And my entire life. Fortunately, it functions on both levels. So yeah, the award goes to the two thousand and nine Judd Apatow vehicle. I guess Dead Apatow slash Adam Sandler vehicle. Funny people. A great film. Which I must say, false advertising. Wait, you're saying they weren't funny? Were people? They weren't recognizable as people. <laughs> and they did nothing that made me laugh. I mean, I don't know why I watched this film. I probably just... I knew I would hate it, and I did hate it. Like, it wasn't... <laughs> there was no surprise there. I was like, yeah, this is this is what I figured it would be. Do you want to set it up a little bit? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll just take about 146 minutes to explain the plot. You'll take way too long for no reason. I mean, the film, I guess, is a personal film for Judd Apatow. As a young fan of comedy and briefly struggling comedian, and more recently a struggling comedian as well. And then he's struggling against uh, the people who watch his comedy. Yeah. So it's inspired by his early experiences trying to make it as a stand-up as well as perhaps his experience being a friend and roommate of Adam Sandler, who stars in this film as somewhat of a version of himself, who is a aging comedian who was obviously successful and influential at some point in his life, but has moved on to making Adam Sandler type films. And he has recently learned that he has a form of leukemia and he's potentially dying. So he gets involved with, a young up-and-coming comedian who I guess is the Judd Apatow stand-in played by Seth Rogen and uses him as his new assistant to help him with his lifestyle and also contribute jokes because he returns to the stand-up circuit. So that's the basic setup. Uh, you've seen this as well, yeah? I saw it when I was 15. Actually, I saw it in the, the, um, the, the, the second time I'd ever been to New York City. I watched it in a hotel room with my cousin. Big fan? From what you can judge a movie on when you've seen it when you're 15. I remember finding it really unfunny and just sort of bland and dumb. And like obvious and just I I hate Judd Apatow's like propensity for just like obviously recycling his life events to be the basis of his terrible comedies. Yeah, there's something extraordinarily self-indulgent in this. Which is okay. I mean, a lot of work's will be self-indulgent. It's funny that uh, a lot of people were like, yeah, this movie is somewhat self-indulgent, but then um, This Is 40 Years Next film is like maybe the most self-indulgent film that's ever been made. But I mean, like self-indulgence can work if you're really talented, I guess. <laughs> but if you're Judd Apatow, then this is the result. I mean, he's infamous for not being able to edit his films to a manageable runtime. And somehow this film is two, two hours and... 26 minutes, so basically two and a half hours in the company of, first of all, Adam Sandler playing a, an arsehole version of Adam Sandler. 
Seth Rogen playing sort of a thinly developed green comic who, you know, is more of a decent person. Leslie Mann as Judd Apatow's wife slash Adam Sandler's wife in this film. <laughs> it's weird that he, he bifurcates himself in this, right? Because, like, on one hand, Seth Rogen's supposed to be a stand-in, but on the other hand... He's made a bunch of garbage movies, so Adam Sandler's character fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the thing is, he hasn't starred in them. No. Um, but yeah, so maybe you should given the given the prowess demonstrated by his stand-up special. So he certainly has a, a predilection of using his wife as a wife character in in films of how <laughs> he certainly has a predilection of uh, making his wife be in relationships with people who are more famous and attractive than he is. Are you saying that funny people isn't this generation's great Gatsby? <laughs> when people pointed out the fact that it it like mirrors the plot structure of the Great Gatsby. It makes it even worse, honestly. It doesn't make me think, oh, how clever. It's like, why would you want to associate this with the Great Gatsby? Yeah. If, like, I'm not sure if that was intentional. It probably wasn't. But if, if it was, like, why? I'm given how improvisational his films are. Like, could anything be intentional, really? I just, I hate it. I hate it when Adam Sandler gets sentimental. Like, I just hate it so much. And he put, like, and I quite like him as an actor, uh, obviously, when he's challenged and he's put in certain roles. And this seems an attempt at that, right? This seems an attempt to like deal with. No, I give him, I give him kudos for actually making this movie, right? It like seems like some version of self-criticism. But yeah, he does not put in a good performance in this. He's fairly one note as this sort of like bitter comedian who treats everyone in his life terribly. So kind of, it seems like uh, Apatow's trying to show the the darker side of comedy culture, but he's also simultaneously celebrating it as well. Um, like it's a complicated love letter to the world of stand-up comedy, but th- there's something about his, uh, I don't know, maybe good naturedness. Cause he's probably like an all right person. He seems like a nice guy. Is that Apatow? Yeah. He seems like a nice guy. He seems like he's not funny, but nothing has made me make him seem like an asshole, particularly the goodwill and enthusiasm that he has is his creative crux really. And that's why he can't even edit down scenes that, uh, shouldn't be in the film at all let alone last like 20 minutes at a time can you give me an example of the whole film <laughs> <laughs> that's not an example i can't remember i can't even remember scenes of this film it was just like one big gelatinous what other scene were eminem big yeah, jokes oh God. It's, it didn't even seem like this film has a structure let alone mirrors great gaps in any meaningful way it's just a series of it's like it's set up its players and events and it's and it just goes okay let's improvise a scene here let's improvise a scene here and and then halfway through the film when it should end they decide to introduce the gatsby element yeah where they go to the home of leslie mann and eric banner and we get a whole bunch of not funny scenes in which eric banner's in <laughs> i guess <laughs> were those the best scenes for you oh god and uh i don't think his character was originally australian but because it's improvised he felt more comfortable doing it as an australian Today, Eric Bann is obvious. His his comedic brilliance come through. And uh... well, he's originally he was originally a comedian. He's not originally an actor. Because from an Australian perspective, we grew up with him in terrible sketch comedy shows, and then he was kind of cast against type as Chopper. So this is getting back to his comedy roots. I really don't have a lot to say about this film because it was just torture to watch. Audrey Plaza's role is particularly terrible. So she's in it just to be some sort of love interest fulfillment for Seth Rogen's character. She's given nothing to do whatsoever. 
Wait, a woman was given nothing to do in a Judd Apatow film? She's just she's just there for Seth Rogen to learn a lesson about how he deals with women. Wait, a Judd Apatow film that has problematic elements when it comes to women? <laughs> Unlike my hero, Brian De Palma. I mean, I guess he can cast his wife, right? And it's not always self-indulgent. Like, he could theoretically want to cast his wife in a role. She's an actress. She should, he should just uh, cast Leslie Manville from Phantom Thread. <laughs> But um, the thing that, that tips this film over the edge, aside from all the other, I guess, autobiographical elements, is the fact that the kids of Leslie Mann and Eric Banner happen to be the kids of John Apatow and Leslie Mann. Yeah. There's also the, the, the main uh, back girding of his stand-up comedy, too. Yeah. And there's scenes in this film in which the kids clearly get to improvise as well and go along with the fun. Oh, God. And also a scene in which one of his daughters gets to do a showcase number of a song in Cats. That's great. So, yeah, I'm glad that's in that. I have nothing funny to say about this film because I think it sucks the funny out of everyone who watches it. Well, this, is, this isn't a comedy podcast. You don't have to say anything funny. But, I mean, that's the only reason to watch a terrible film is to have something funny to say about it. I don't really. It's just it's a terrible film. It, just, it is what I thought it would be. Why did you watch it? Just to see if my instincts were correct and they were correct. I guess. I mean, I just hate... I, I've never liked anything he's done, including Freaks and Geeks. Whoa. Is there a movie where if someone announced that they liked it, you would stop, like, associating with them? Besides, like, you know, like Nazi propaganda. No, because that would have to be taken with totality with the rest of their existence. Like, I don't think, I don't think you can define a person. Okay, let's say, let's say you're going on, like, a, a, a date, right? Yeah, if I, if I was presented with, like, some options and I had to make superficial decisions based on minimal information i guess that'd be something like that maybe but what's the film it's like i'm really obsessed with x film like what's the film that would just make you like oh i'm gonna pretend to have a phone call and then walk away and you can't use funny people because you're gonna see anything i was thinking (laughs) (laughs) you know what film i really love mute (laughs) (laughs) she's a mute tattoo (laughs) I'm not someone who, like, if I found, if I knew someone well, right, and liked them and then found out, oh, hey, I really like funny people. It doesn't actually drop them in my estimation as a person whatsoever. Mm, but, but is there anything that would drop them in your estimation? Like Atlas Shrugged. That's getting, like, ideologically dodgy, which, which, which is a bit different. Yeah, I guess so. But everything is ideology, wouldn't you say? So what's the Apatow ideology? Um, be be rich and have no problems. <laughs> hey, but he, you watch his stand up. He's just an ordinary guy like the rest of us. He's just a middle aged slum. I I I I'm glad that I have blindness that stand up out of my memory. <laughs> I love that. That's what he he spends the entire stand up routine trying to justify his credentials as just a regular guy. And you know, you know, like regular guys obsess over their reviews of multi-million dollar films, which is what he does for yeah, a huge chunk of the routine. And also talks about, I love the bit where he... <laughs> you remember this, you remember this way, way better than I do. And I barely, yeah, I barely paid attention either. But I remember, I remember there was a bit where he talks about the Netflix show Love that he's involved in. I don't remember this at all. And people were criticizing the show Love because like it's nerdy, schlubby character has like a really attractive girlfriend and saying that's not realistic. And then he's like, not realistic. Look at me and Leslie Mann. She's beautiful. Whoa, whoa. And the crowd cheers. It's horrible. Now that I think on, I do kind of remember that. Um, actually, the one bit I liked from Funny People 
there's a scene in which uh, Adam Sandler has hired a bunch of people to jam with him because he can't get his friends to do it or doesn't know anyone who can jam with him, which is not funny. Like, I don't think that concept is funny, but they play a cover of uh, Real Love, one of the Ips Post Facto Beatles songs. They used like a John Lennon demo and dressed it up with the surviving Beatles members. He does a cover of it and he's got a weird voice, but it kind of works. I, I quite like that. So it was nothing really to do with the film. It was just the fact that, hey, I don't mind Adam Sandler's voice in some context. And he does he does sing a lot. Like he does jokey song stuff, but when he sings straight, he's not too bad. Just because it's, it's a slight, unusual, quite a thin, high voice. Did you know uh, Janus Kerensky? No. Uh, he's a famous cinematographer whose name I can't pronounce, but he did like Shindra's List. And he filmed funny people. Yeah. Really? Yeah, like he did a lot of the the best uh, Spielberg films. The ones that have a really good, like, good visual sense. He did. He recently did Ready Player One, even. Wow. I mean, the visual sense of this film is television. Like, I can't. I can't believe the man who shot. I can't believe the man who shot Saving Private Ryan shot fucking twenty people. Like, that's crazy. Well, I mean, I guess Avatar style is okay. Keep the camera rolling and let's wait for Adam Sandler to say something hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> even if it takes all day and then we'll keep all day of footage <laughs> so you love this so much I, it's i definitely say it's worse than a non i'd rather watch a non i mean a non is shorter at least a non is like you know flirt. it has the pretense of being a film it feels like a film comprised of deleted scenes on a dvd it's like you know when you watch a deleted deleted scene you're like well i understand why they deleted this mm. It feels like that's the whole film. It's just strung together and with no sense of story or flow or direction. That's the film. So it was the worst film that you saw last week. Uh, I actually didn't. I don't think I had a worst film. All my films are going to be highlights. You have to have a worst film. Like out of all the films, one you enjoyed the least. Whoa. Whoa, you. Uh, let's see. I guess just virtue of what I rated on Letterboxd. I'm talking about uh, Dog Eat Dog. That garbage. So this is the film like you hated out of all the films. Yeah. So tell us about that and why it's so awful. It's a film called Doggy Dog. It's directed by... Wait, Doggy Dog? Or Dog Eat? Doggy Dog. Doggy Eat. Doggy Eat Dog. Oh, Dog Eat Dog. Fuck off. Doggy Dog sounds like a good film. It's like Stoop Dogs by effect. Yeah. Um. Anyway. It was uh, directed by a filmmaker we actually talked about a bit earlier. Uh, his name is Paul Schrader. It's sort of a uh, postmodern crime thriller thing. Uh, it's very sort of uh, morally <laughs> ambiguous. It's very, like, as Schrader does, he tends to make films that um, maybe take sort of a, the idea of, like, a liberal humanism, right? Or like the Christian idea that people can be redeemed and stuff like that. It applies to just like the worst people that you can imagine. Like I guess Taxi Driver being the um, er example of this. And Doggy Dog is a film. It's about three sort of irre- irredeemable monsters. And the entire like, crux of the film is like sort of daring you to find the humanity of these people. Uh, in a way that doesn't like make them seem sympathetic or good or even like cool at all like it's very de-glamorizing of 
like crime genre types and uh, a review that i i read that i thought was very on point was like it takes three characters who would have been like bit parts in tarantino movies right but just strips them of all the cool <laughs> it makes them like sort of pathetic losers um they're played by uh nicholas cage oh good uh willem dafoe uh straight a staple yeah and then uh a man whose name i've forgotten because he's not like an actor okay He's not like a common actor. His name is Christopher Matthew Cook. He's just sort of like a tough guy. So even though this was your worst film of the week, you still think it's a good film? Uh, I think it's a very it's it's a film that like is it it like wants you to dislike it. But in some sense, you consider it a good film. Yeah, I would consider it to be a pretty good film. There's just something very uh worried about Trader's style, and I I. I personally very much respond to his like sort of theme about asking you to find you know an element of humanity in these people that are just like the worst monsters possible. Well, according to Cinema Fan sixty five on the popular film logging site Letterboxd, if this is considered a good film to some, they should never direct, write, or criticize a movie again because holy fuck, this was a goddamn train wreck. So uh, come back from that, mother. Well, I would not. I would not agree with that. <laughs> there's no. There's no. You didn't actually talk about the film at all. You just talked about how bad it was. Like there's no. There's no point to refute. You know. Well, let me find one that has a point to refute. If you want. <laughs> Go ahead. It's it's got a very sort of uh, yeah like worried graphic style that I liked a lot too. It is one of like bizarre text bubbles that pop on screen and stuff like that it's maybe this is a better review it took away it took away 90 minutes of my life i could have spent playing pokemon fuck you paul schrader <laughs> that's that's every movie though buddy <laughs> uh you know what i i i enjoyed this movie quite a bit it, again it's like it's it's if you if you're not someone like me who's like pretty much um inured to depictions of like really graphic violence and like uh stuff then i, I don't know if i would watch this one it, it, it doesn't necessarily function as well as, like, a character-driven narrative. This really feels like Paul Trader is, like, I'm just fucking sick of making, like, movies that are, you know, boring. <laughs> and I'm going to make something that's just, like, nihilistic and grotesque. So, there you go. Are you looking forward to his uh, Winter Light ripoff coming out soon? I am. Uh, I've heard it's more of a dire a country priest ripoff. But it looks like Winter Light from the trailer. A lot. I am, I am very excited for that. I think... I think she's just a pretty underrated director as far as it goes. It's like obviously some of his films are revered, but he's more revered as a script scriptwriter than a than a director. I think I think sometimes uh, the films that he directs when he didn't write can be kind of whatever to a certain extent. Like some of them, I re- I really want to watch his uh, Mishima bi- uh, biopic. His what? His Yukio uh, Mishima biopic. I thought you were literally like not you couldn't remember someone's name, so you just said Mishima Bob or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So Dog Eat Dog, he didn't write. No, he didn't. But I think it was good regardless. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's just a a bias that is not justified by the movies of his that I actually like. But um, I would say I really like Autofocus a lot, which he also didn't write. And that's the um, Hogan's Heroes one, right? Yeah, it's great. It's great stuff. It's very funny. And Willem Dafoe's also in that one. Willem Dafoe's just great. I watch. He's he's just he's just always a presence that I find compelling. 
like he's the throwback to a an era where like people in Hollywood didn't have to be like beautiful people, you know. That's how I like him so much, I think. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's that's doggy dog. So Hugh, what was your highlight? Um, I would say my highlight would be probably Odd Man Out. Hmm, I've seen that film. Which uh, is a Carol Reed film, the the film that immediately precedes the Third Man. In fact, uh, I was actually surprised at how good it was. Obviously, having been a fan of Reed's work, especially the Third Man, for years, I was expecting it to be decent, but I didn't quite expect it to be so good. Especially like based on its premise, which I knew was like, you know, there's a bungled heist by this undisclosed sort of IRA organization, and the leader ends up on the run in belfast being hunted by the police and that is out of the way pretty early on in the film like that set up you know you get to that point in the film you're like okay so this is what the film is going to be now it's going to be this guy being chased by a police cat and mouse for the rest of the film and then you know some sort of ending probably tragic and you're like yeah i guess that's a, that's okay i guess i can watch this noirish thing that does that it doesn't really play out like that at all which is interesting no um and I was watching some like features on it and there's an interview with uh, Guy Hamilton, later famous for directing some of the Bond films, who said that Carol Reed used to tell him there's no stars in his films. And I realized that made the film come together for me and made some of the elements that I liked about it uh, come to focus because there's something about the way he uses the side characters that doesn't make them feel like incidental parts of this broader narrative in which we really only care about, you know, James Mason's character as this IRA leader on the run. Every side character in the film is given, like, a really meaty role. Like, if you were just an actor and you had that small part, you're getting so much more out of this sort of film than you might expect in terms of what function that person has in the story. So you get, like, this weird number of characters in the film. Things that stood out for me for really odd reasons, like there's an instance in the film in which two uh, middle-aged women english women come across james mason and think he's been hit by a bus so they take him in oh yeah that sequence is great their performance is amazing in the film and there's a lot of character detail there about them i wonder if they i wonder like because like so many of these people i guess just never i mean i guess it's like a remove at least for me from like in both like terms of country and time yeah yeah it's like i wonder if those are like actual actors if it was just like people that he found I'm assuming they're actors, but um, I don't know. Yeah, just given the era that it was made. There's, there's something about there's this quiet intensity to the way a lot of these scenes play out. Um, these dialogue-driven scenes are very understated. And there's, there's a, like, a threat of realism, even though there's a lot of grand, visual, noirish, expressionistic stuff and a lot of other scenes. There's, just the, there's this really great screenplay, first of all, um, adapted by the writer of the book on which it's based. Mm, interesting. So kind of third man-ish too. Yeah, which he seemed to do a, a lot. I guess like the third man, it's a film without heroes and villains. I think I prefer the third man though, to be honest. I was surprised how how much this competes with the third man because I didn't expect it to to be so good. And and what do you what do you think of James Mason? I thought he's he's, he's a really good performance. He hasn't he's given like a, a role in which he's not, you know he he's not given much to do yeah i think i think he often gets very hammy but he doesn't quite get that there he's he's understated for a lot of the film because he's just wandering around being injured and then having hallucinations even if he's doing an irish accent it's still like chase mason he does a decent irish accent i think 
Yeah, it was, it was fun. I think if you're Irish, you'd probably pick it apart, but... Yeah, probably. It's better than a lot of the attempts I've seen. I think it's a decent... Decent enough. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? 